Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we'll be in verses just 31 and 32 uh, this week. And they read this. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we are very thankful for the opportunity to be in your word, for the opportunity in the midst of all of this to still worship, uh, to gather together uh, around a screen, but with our families and maybe with a few others at the church building or in our home, uh, and to be able to worship in a similar fashion that we have before. We ask your blessing this morning as we look uh, right now into your word in these verses. We ask that uh, the words of Jesus, uh, you by your spirit, would make very clear for us. You would help and teach us. Uh, you would convict us. Um, and you would continue to work in us for your glory, for the furtherance of the gospel, and for our greatest joy to be found in Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what a passage to go into our summer series with, huh? Divorce and remarriage. That's not controversial at all, is it? You know, they say that you shouldn't talk about religion and politics at the water cooler at work when there used to be a water cooler at your job. And I would imagine that there are a few topics uh, that some might say you should avoid talking about in church. And probably divorce and remarriage is right there at the top. This topic is hotly debated, incredibly personal, and one where angels fear to tread. You know, if I was smart, I would have asked our guest speaker to tackle this text, and I would have gotten an easy one from the Psalms. But you guessed it, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. But honestly, in truth, I wouldn't want to miss this one, because I deeply care for you that you know truth, that is given to us in God's word, and that you and I together desire to apply God's truth, even hard truth, in everyday circumstances. While the leading issue or question is, what is your position on divorce and remarriage within the church? The real question is, what does the Bible say about living as a disciple of Jesus in all of my relationships? How do I enter into this marriage covenant, the most sacred of all human relationships, as a disciple of Jesus, with another disciple of Jesus? Ideally, it would look like Genesis 2, right? God creates man, sets him to work in the garden, recognizes that man has no helper fit for him. So God makes one from man, a helper from man, and presents her to man. Man rejoices with singing or poetry when he sees the gift God has given to him. And then Genesis 2 ends with, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is marriage as God intends. One man and one woman together for life as one flesh with great intimacy and relationship and no shame. Marriage is not just a good idea or something that is expected of you when you're between the ages of 20 or 30. 
But marriage is God's design. God created it. He defines it. He sets the limits of who may be married and when divorce and remarriage are permissible. No one has the right to modify what God has established. So before we look at the issue of divorce and remarriage in Matthew 5 and how a marriage can be legitimately brought to an end, let's look at what is marriage and the relationship that Jesus is calling his disciples to how to live as followers of Jesus in the midst of these relationships, marriage being a central one for many. Our first point, and we only have three, the first point is marriage is designed and defined by God. Marriage is designed and defined by God. Genesis 2 showed us that God created man and woman and placed them together. In fact, the wording is that they should leave their father and mother, which previously were the closest of relationship, but that they should leave so they can hold fast to their wife or to one another. There is no other relationship in the Bible that is called to be one flesh, where two become one in this way. The church is called to be a unified body. We are all members of one body, we are, but we are not all one flesh. The husband and wife are so joined that they are actually one. This models itself after the language of God himself, who exists eternally as three in one. Marriage is marked by a closeness between a husband and his wife that brings companionship, sexual intimacy, and should not be separated. The Old Testament gave an exception for a young man who was just married to not have to go into war or go off into uh, battle so that he and his young bride would not have to be separated. This is why any separation of a husband and wife for any prolonged time is not good and not the intention of God's design for marriage. But more than just oneness, marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and his wife. Jim Neuheiser highlights this as he defines marriage as a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman that has been established under God and before the community. A lifelong covenant of companionship. This covenant language is implied in Genesis 2, but it's mentioned clearly in Malachi chapter 2 verse 14 says this, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. A biblical covenant was not to be entered into lightly, but it involved mutual obligations, promises of blessing upon fulfillment, and consequences for breaking the covenant. How many people today might hesitate to enter into marriage and the marriage covenant if they understood the seriousness of what they were about to do? The man, and his, the man and woman, husband and wife, are not merely coming together for a joint bank account and joint tax status, but they are joining in covenant together and with God. Being married is not a piece of paper for two people who love each other but it is a sacred covenant with the Creator. This is why marriage cannot be a 
between a believer and a non-believer. Because it is not only about lovey feelings and sexual intimacy. Those things can be, happen, can be had outside of marriage. But marriage is about joining together under God in a covenantal relationship. A Christian and a non-Christian cannot enter that type of relationship with God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. The nature of the covenant which God makes is serious and should be seen as one as, uh, that it is a lifelong covenant, not one to be entered into lightly, not one to be entered into with any escape clause. Divorce is not an option. Divorce is not given as, well, if it doesn't work out in the end, there's a back door. Matthew 19, verse 6 says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is often shared with the bride and groom at their wedding day. But this idea of permanence, of a covenant, this is why Neuheiser in his definition stated that marriage has been established under God. The man and his wife are not the final say of what happens in the marriage. God is. This means that marriage in God's eyes, under God, is one of intimacy and lifelong companionship as covenantal partners. Marriage is a picture of God's relationship with his covenant people. It is a way for God's people to fill the earth and have dominion over it by having children. Marriage is a way for God to make his people holy, to bring them great joy and happiness. And done well, marriages also bring glory to God and are a good witness to the non-believing culture around us. These are the benefits, these are the joys of marriage in God's eyes, under God. As one another sees each other as covenant partners in relationship with one another, as disciples of Jesus, desiring in all our relationships to obey and observe the commands and the lifestyle that Jesus commands and commends for his disciples. Seen here in Matthew 5. Anything else is not living according to God's definition of marriage. In 2015, the Supreme Court decision of Obergefell versus Hodges sought to redefine marriage. The Supreme Court and those fighting for this redefinition made themselves to be lawmakers by setting aside God's definition of marriage to redefine it to whatever they want it to be. If someone can redefine marriage to mean I can marry whomever or whatever person I want to, then who is to tell that person that they could not, under this new definition, that really has no definition anymore, that that person could not marry their dog or their goldfish? You say, that's absurd. And indeed it is. It's absurd for created beings to redefine what the Creator has established. And yet often, Christians only fight against the culture's redefinition of marriage, and they miss how they, we, I, are redefining marriage all the time in our own homes. 
As disciples of Jesus, we must remember that marriage is not our call. It is above our pay grade. Marriage is under God. It is His design, and only He gets to define it. God's first words on marriage are that the man and his wife are joined together. They are one flesh. They are naked, and they are unashamed. And yet you may be listening knowing that you and your spouse have in your home redefined marriage. You're okay living apart. Your redefinition of marriage is maybe you're under the same roof, but you have your schedule and your stuff to do, and they have theirs, and never the two shall meet, except on Sundays when you put on a mask and come to church. Is there only minimal companionship in your marriage? Are you redefining marriage to, to where there's no intimacy anymore? There's never nakedness, maybe only shame or guilt. You see, we can look at the culture and say, how dare you redefine marriage out there? And that's true. But all we to look in our own hearts and see how we're redefining marriage for ourselves. Well, that's good for newlyweds and stuff, but that's not reality for older folks or for people with dot, dot, dot. We can't do such and such. We're busy with work or traveling or we just don't line up on our likes anymore. We have different interests. All of a sudden, an intimacy, companionship, friendship, covenantal partnership is not what your marriage is looking like or defined as. Marriage is a covenant with your spouse to live under God's design and definition as one flesh for life in your community. Staying married for the kid's sake is not God's design for marriage. Not saying we don't believe in divorce or God hates divorce so we'll just stick it out is not God's design for marriage. Just in the section, two sections prior to where we're at in Matthew 5, do you remember how Jesus was talking about anger and murder? And he said if you hate your brother, or excuse me, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Go be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Pursuing reconciliation, initiating reconciliation. And yes, somehow in our own marriage, we, we might not fight, but there's certainly not a covenantal relationship of companionship and intimacy, of growing in holiness and sanctification. We're too quick to want to push things under the rug and let bygones be bygones, somebody once said. I have no idea where that actually comes from. Marriage is a covenant with your spouse. I said earlier that our covenant relationship with our spouse is an example of God's relationship with his people. And what if God lived with his people, with us, like we are okay to live with our spouse? What if he actually modeled the way he lives with us, the way that we live with our spouse, instead of the other way around? Would we be okay with that kind of relationship with God? Would we say, God loves me. He is faithful. He is good. Look at all he's done for me. Would we be growing in 
our gratitude towards all that he has done if he's standoffish in another room and doesn't really communicate with us. There's no companionship and friendship and intimacy. Jesus says here in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount that his disciples are the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They pursue peace with others. They confess wrongs, repent regularly. So the anger and bitterness don't show up, grow up, and kill the relationship. These things are true for marriage. These things ought to be true of every marriage between believers. And divorce only comes into the picture because believers are not living with one another as disciples of Jesus ought to be. So that brings us to point two. Marriage is defined and given by God, designed and defined by God. But two, marriages are permitted a divorce only because of sin. Now, before all of a sudden you throw this out and you press pause or stop and shut your computer down because we said the S word, sin, hang on. Hang in there with us, okay? When God's people are not living according to his desires for them, then divorce or ending the marriage covenant becomes a conversation. Every divorce is because of sin. I did not say that every divorce is sinful, but every single divorce is a direct result of the fall of man into sin. There's an excellent book, a marriage book titled, When Sinners Say I Do, to remind the reader they are a sinner. To remind the reader the person they married, or if they're reading it before, the person they're gonna marry is a sinner. And that all of their marriage problems will be primarily because of sin. And the focus is on the sin of my own heart, not on the sin of my spouse's heart. But the sin of my own heart is what I bring into the marriage. Matthew 5, verse 31, where we began, Jesus is quoting or referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, where Moses is giving the law to the people of Israel. And he's giving a lot of laws in regards to relationships and what to do. Sometimes they're even labeled miscellaneous laws. And in this one, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, it states this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her. Remember that phrase, some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if that second husband, the latter man, dies, who took her to be his wife, then, verse 4, her former husband, who sent her away before, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that your Lord God is giving you for an inheritance. This is the context of which the phrase certificate of divorce that Jesus refers to is coming from. It was forbidden to remarry your ex-wife if she was remarried after your marriage ended, 
But then that marriage ended, and now you want to marry her again. You can't. That was not allowed. It was said to be an abomination. She has been defiled. But the initial part of this, the point we want to look at primarily, was that the man found indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce. She no longer has favor in his eyes. Jesus picks up on the phrase, certificate of divorce. This will come up later as well in Matthew, as the Pharisees ask Jesus, if it is lawful to divorce your wife for any cause. Matthew 19, and beginning in verse 1, we'll go and we'll read this story, because there will be a piece that is really helpful for us in our looking at Matthew 5, verse 31 and 32. It says this in Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is exactly how we started this morning. We looked back at Genesis 2 and looked and referenced uh, verse 6 here and began to look at what does the Bible say? How does God define marriage? That's exactly what Jesus does to the Pharisees. So they ask another question. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said in verse 8, Jesus said to them, because of their heart, your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples, now verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. You see, the disciples understood the, the gravity of the covenant of marriage. And in looking at it, said, if you're going to marry, it's for life. There's only this way out of it by means of sexual immorality. In that case, it would be better not to marry. Men and women, at this point, it would be better for you uh, not to chuckle or say any jokes uh, to your spouse if they're in the, in the room with you. <clears throat> the disciples are saying, understanding the gravity of the situation, uh, of what's being expected of those who come into the marriage covenant. These are no longer two. They are one. Can we divorce for any reason? Well, no, you can't, Jesus says. So why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? Jesus' initial answer points out an error within the Pharisees' questions. Moses did not command anyone to divorce his wife. Rather, Moses permitted it because of their hardness of hearts. It wasn't meant to be. It wasn't designed that way. And it wasn't supposed to come to that. Jesus goes on to condemn the kinds of frivolous, any cause divorces, which were so common among the Jews. Today, we would refer to these maybe as no-fault divorces. 
just easy. Easy come, easy go. We can just get rid of this situation and be friends and have an uh, amiable divorce. There was two different rabbi schools in 200 AD, and the story is told of one, the school of Shammai, who believed that a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity, impurity in her. But the school of Hillel said a man can divorce his wife even if she spoiled a dish for him. And both come to use the phrase that we read earlier because he has found in her indecency and in anything. One would take it and emphasize the anything. She spoiled a dish. She ruined supper. And the other one would take it and emphasize indecency, impurity, or unchastity. Jesus makes it clear you cannot divorce for any reason. The husband and wife have been joined by God, and it is meant to be for life. But Jesus does not then say that no man can separate, but that no man should separate. It's not that they cannot be separated. The husband and the wife can be, but they should not be. Man should not undo what God has done. Have you ever been using superglue? Found your fingers very quickly joined to the object you were gluing back together? It happens every time, right? Then you have to pry your fingers off the object or use something to try and dissolve or lessen the strength of the glue. But even when you get your fingers loose from the grips of the glue, there is residue that lingers long after. Fingers are sticky. The residue is there. Sometimes there's even hard, crusty skin that begins, or something on your skin that begins to form. And sometimes it's really painful, depending on how much you had to pull to get your fingers loose. You can divorce, Jesus says, but it will not be clean cut with no messy residue. It is not what is intended. It was not what was designed. It is not what is desired, especially for disciples of Jesus. And it will only be allowed or permitted for the grossest of covenant violators. Both in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Jesus states that anyone who divorces their wife, except for sexual immorality, commits adultery. You cannot divorce your wife, as the school of Hillel says, for spoiling your dinner. But there is one sin that so grossly, seriously violates the one flesh principle underlying marriage that it gives the innocent party grounds to divorce the adulterer. There is one sin that so quickly and grossly cuts to the quick of the relationship of companionship, of one flesh, that Jesus allows an exception. Interesting how this text in Matthew 5 follows what we looked at together last week. Jesus commands in the seventh commandment, God commands, excuse me, in the seventh commandment, Jesus reminds us in the passage we looked at last week, not to commit adultery. And he takes a breach of that commandment so seriously that the punishment in the Old Testament for adultery was death. And under the new covenant, Jesus says the punishment is that the guilty party, the adulterer, can be justly divorced by the innocent spouse. The punishment in the New Testament under the New Covenant is so serious that it's the only thing Jesus here in this passage is giving as an exception 
for the reason that this marriage should be, or could be, excuse me, could be dissolved. God has brought these two together. And yet the action that you just committed in adultery, sexual immorality, is so heinous to the covenant and its terms that this thing could be, could be ruined and could be separated. Under the Old Testament law, the innocent spouse, the one who didn't commit adultery, would have been free to marry, remarry, because the adulterous spouse would have been put to death. And so in the New Covenant, while the penalty is not putting them to death, it's as though a death has occurred within the marriage covenant. The sin of sexual immorality and adultery is so heinous, especially to the marriage covenant. It ruins families. And it can ruin generations of families. Some theologians do a word study Texas two-step here to make sexual immorality in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 mean something that only refers to incest or fornication that is prior to marriage. So sex that would uh, ruin a betrothal period or an engagement or a marriage that all of a sudden would have been incestuous to who didn't realize they were related to each other, find out later. That then would bring an annulment or the marriage would be called off because fornication happened prior to marriage. It's not sexual adultery within marriage. It's either prior to or a marriage that's not even legitimate because it's incest. And so there's no divorce being permitted by Jesus. He's just saying those are illegitimate marriages or marriages that will stop before they ever got started. Those are people who will say that there was no uh, allowance given for divorce at all. There is no exceptions. Divorce is always prohibited. But the word here given in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 is the word for sexual immorality is porneia and can refer to a litany of sexual immoral actions which encompass adultery, adultery, incest, homosexuality, and a variety of other sexual sins. In the context Jesus is using it, it is clear he is referring to adulterous sexual immorality as grounds for divorce in marriage. Every divorce is because of sin. But not every divorce is sinful. And in the case of sexual immorality, adultery, Jesus allows for the innocent party to divorce their spouse. Notice the guilty one is not allowed to divorce. That's not the language used. For their part, they must hopefully, as a believer, repent and turn to seek genuine repentance and its fruit. Reconciliation. However, just because a sin may be potential grounds for divorce, just because sexual immorality allows the exception to where one can justifiably divorce their spouse, does not mean that a divorce must take place. Just because it can certainly does not mean it must. The innocent person now understand that we all know no one is truly innocent, in any marriage. But the person here who did not break the marriage covenant by adultery is not forced to divorce, but can. 
the sin that was committed by their spouse, by the guilty one, is so heinous that they can. There are far too many instances, uh, examples, questions to get wrapped up, uh, all of this wrapped up cleanly uh, with a blanket answer or answering all of them right now. But generally speaking, the innocent party and the guilty party should pursue the path of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation, knowing that there is always hope for the believer in the transforming work of the gospel. There are a whole lot of possible exceptions, a whole lot of, yeah, but what about this situation? But just as Jesus mentioned in the past, two sections prior to this one, when you know your brother has something against you, you leave and go now and desire to reconcile. Some forms of adultery or sexual immorality are of the nature that the consequences may be lengthy prison time, sexually transmitted diseases, financial loss, and etc. And that may only, those consequences may only serve to keep marital reconciliation from likely occurring or even being encouraged. Also, if a guilty spouse is unrepentant and moves in with someone else, then that obviously hinders reconciliation. And wise counsel would be helpful in how to move forward for the innocent spouse and possibly their children. Divorce is never the design, never the intended outcome, not what anyone signed up for. But Jesus makes it clear that divorce for the Christian is to be rare, only when reconciliation cannot or will not happen. And only, he states here, in the case of sexual immorality. That means that there are numerous sinful reasons that people get divorced. There are multitudes of reasons that are sinful why Christians get divorced. Someone might be asking, well, what about 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where it seems to be clear that divorce can occur in the case of abandonment. If one is abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, in that passage it seems Paul says, let it be so. And he makes it clear it is something that he is saying, which is still biblical, and he's not quoting Jesus. Someone else might say, well, what about abuse in marriage? Can you divorce if your spouse is abusing you? To that I would say, email me. Call me. If you are asking there may be a reason for it and a name that's attached to your question, and these are so tricky. Every situation is unique. This is why one of the most crucial pieces uh, of advice we can give is prayerfully go for wise counsel. Prayerfully come to God with all of your concerns and your marriage issues, things that are happening, and please seek out wise counsel. But let me say, if you or your children are in danger physically, then you need to get out of danger immediately. But if you are someone who's in a bad marriage, 
and you're just looking for any way to divorce your spouse, that you can stamp Jesus approved on it, then that's not what we're looking for. And that's what Jesus is avoiding here. By saying you can't just get divorced for any reason. What God has joined together, let no man separate. May your first step be to pray, to confess, to seek wise counsel. Because if you are not in danger and you're just looking for an excuse to get rid of the old ball and chain, as they say, then we all know that that's not right. And not the attitude that is pursuant of reconciliation. So let's move on. What if it's already done? Papers are signed, you're divorced. Some would say, you're free. Either justly, in the case of sexual immorality, or unjustly, you're divorced. It's done. Now what? What about remarriage? That's our third point. It's a question, but what about remarriage? Are you free to marry again? It depends. When you say free, do you mean is Jesus okay with it? Or is it okay and not a sin? If you divorced your spouse for unbiblical reasons, then no, you can't remarry. The Bible is clear on that. It would be sin for you to remarry. You committed sin, getting an illegitimate divorce, and you will commit sin again in remarrying. But can I sin by getting the divorce? Sin in getting remarried to my soulmate and then repent and live a godly life after I've done all those sins? Legitimate question someone might be asking in their mind. Can I just go ahead and sin and then repent of it when it's all done? Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God's going to forgive me, right? I'm in a bad marriage. I want a good one. I have someone picked out. Hopefully not. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. God forbid that we would presume upon the grace of God and take so lightly the action of sin. You can... Sure, you can do whatever you want to do, ultimately. No one's actually going to come and stop you. The, the law of the land has given us permission to do lots of things. You can go do it. It would be terribly sad. Not wise at all to do so. You would be committing to sinning. Starting your new marriage off by sinning and possibly deceiving your friends and church leaders. And you would have gone against loads of wise counsel that would have told you otherwise. Don't do it. If you were divorced, and you have not yet remarried, and you were divorced for sinful or unbiblical reasons, I just wanted out. I like him. We didn't have anything in common anymore. We just grew apart. You name the reason. Both of you are at fault. Lots of things. There's three sides to every story. Just wasn't working out. Want to get out. My friends told me I could. Culture says it's okay. There's no fault. We just ended this thing, and he got his stuff, I got my stuff. We're cool. We're going to be friends. We're going to co-parent, whatever that means. Don't do it. Don't get remarried. If you did that and it's already done, don't get remarried. If you had to get out of a horrible hell of a marriage, don't exasperate, exacerbate the problem by then remarrying 
and very possibly continuing a cycle. If you are willing to sin to remarry, then think of other things you may be willing to overlook or justify just to get into a new situation. Something new, something different, something flashy. All too often, someone escapes a bad marriage and moves all too quickly into another bad marriage. Someone said, lonely hearts can easily be deceived. If you have divorced your spouse, and it was not justified by Jesus and his exemption given here, and you seek to obey Christ as your Lord, then do not get married. You don't have grounds or permission from Jesus to remarry. If your spouse remarries, then the hopes of reconciliation are dashed. And you should, after much prayer, wise counsel, prior to even looking, lots of time, counsel working through the grief and loss of your marriage, then be free to marry. Because the hopes of reconciliation are gone. If you have divorced your spouse already and they are still unmarried, they have never married and you have never married, then prayerfully move towards reconciliation with them. It won't be easy. It'll be a long, hard road. But pray earnestly, love them genuinely, and pursue God and them with integrity and purity. A note, they are not your spouse yet. You divorced them. So don't go acting like a married couple before you come back together again in the covenant of marriage. But if you have divorced your spouse already, and you have remarried, even though it was wrong in your case to do so, the deed is done. Repent with your spouse if you have not done so already. Rejoice in the forgiveness of God and commit to living now as a faithful disciple of Jesus in the marriage covenant you are currently in with your spouse. Pursue holiness, protect your marriage, and initiate daily reconciliation with God and your spouse. If your divorced spouse, if you are divorced, divorced your spouse and it is justified by Jesus because they were unfaithful to you and they committed adultery, reconciliation was not possible or maybe desired on their part and you have remarried someone, then rejoice that God's goodness to you is allowing you the gift of marriage again. And this time may it be one that is full of grace and blessing for you and your spouse all the days of your life, for the glory of God, for your greatest joy to be in Jesus, and as a witness to the world, seek to help others as well, growing in their understanding of marriage and what you have learned through great difficulty in it. Marriage is not the unpardonable, or divorce is not the unpardonable sin. There is grace and there is hope. Hope and grace and reconciliation, and if that can't be the case, than possibly through a godly remarriage. If you are divorced and it was justified by Jesus' exception clause here because of adultery and you are not yet married, wait. Be patient. God will provide for you. God will not let you be tempted above what you are able to bear. God desires to sanctify you. Wait. Seek counsel. Be honest. Be wise. Engage in good gospel community and enter into the process of pursuing a relationship with God and with others wisely. 
and with a gospel-centered community around you, helping you, that you will listen to. There's more application to give, but we must go. Let me just say, for the single person, maybe a child, a teenager, college student, or someone who never married, would you continue to commit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus? Understanding that He is the one who defines and sets about the, the, what marriage is. He uses his relationship with us as part of the story. The metaphor of marriage speaks to his relationship to us. We were sinners. We ran out on him. We pursued other uh, spouses, other lovers. We were unfaithful, and yet he was faithful to us. God sent his son to redeem a faithless bride who deserved to be divorced and put away. But Jesus not only kept us, he sacrificed for us at the cost of his life, gave his life to redeem us, to buy us back, and is united to us for all of eternity. Also, you may be married someday, or want to be married, and you need to know the seriousness of the covenant of marriage, the design God has for marriage, and the need to protect your marriage daily. Living as a disciple now of Jesus faithfully will benefit your marriage the rest of your days. And for the married person, you need to be reminded of the daily work of keeping short accounts with your spouse, of fighting to protect your marriage, of pursuing intimacy and companionship, a one, relation, one flesh relationship with your spouse, of seeing the problems in your marriage lie in your own heart, not primarily in the heart of your spouse, and of pursuing holiness in your relationship with God above all else. A good marriage is not had in isolation from the rest of God's desires for his disciples in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And never ask, never see asking for help with your marriage or marriage counseling as shameful or a defeat. Cars run best when they are regularly maintained and cared for by those who know how to help them. Marriages need someone. They need a godly couple, they need a counselor, a life group leader, a pastor, elders to help them regularly. Don't be too proud to ask for help only to watch your marriage dissolve. Brothers and sisters, may we be quick to ask for help. May we be quick to pray. Understanding, sitting under the teaching of Jesus here, uh, that marriage is by God's design. And uh, would we be quick in our relationships to seek to live uh, out a holy life according to God's design. We're going to just end here. There's a couple other application, uh, but it's fitting for us to end here. Would you join me as we pray? God, would you bless uh, the marriages at Calvary? Uh, would you bless them and enrich them? Would you bring uh, great intimacy and companionship and joy and holiness through them? That they would be a wonderful uh, message to a watching world around us. Uh, of your goodness and of the gifts that you have given to your people. Father, thank you that you didn't leave us on our own. Thank you that you didn't fully divorce us, although there's language of that in the Old Testament of, of leaving, of cutting off the covenant people, and yet you redeemed us by means of your Son. Father, would we be quick to recognize the grace we have been shown and again, continue to initiate reconciliation, always striving hard to be uh, holy, to living according to how you would desire us to live, seeing marriage from your perspective and not our own. 
Father, would you please bless us? We don't deserve it, yet we desire it for your glory and for uh, grace to be evident in us and through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.